So it's funny because last week we uh, actually started the series and so we got that last week and some of you guys got to see it and seeing some of you guys seeing it for the first time, <laughs> same reaction. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> it's great to be here this new year, amen? Good to see you guys. Hey, uh, so last week, uh, like I said, we started the series. We, we dove into a new series looking at a section of the book of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And last week we started at the end. And the reason we started at the end was because at the end is where Jesus tells all the reasons why it's so important to listen to all the things very closely that he says before the end. And so uh, it kind of laid the groundwork for why we want to pay attention to what God is going to be speaking to us over the next several weeks through this section called the Sermon on the Mount. But today we're going to jump back to the beginning. So we're going to start at the beginning like most people would have assumed uh, we do. Um, but why don't you stand with me and we're going to read uh, the opening words of this section called the Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus teaching and this is going to be Matthew 5. Um, I'm going to start in verse 2, but I know that the screen is going to start on verse 3. So um, it says, Jesus began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know, when we come into a time of year like the, the new year, we, um, we kind of, we look at our lives and we say, what are some ways maybe I can reorganize some of the pieces of my life so it might work better, right? And so we make resolutions about things like diet or career or, or maybe our schedule or habits or things like that. Uh, what we're going to find today, though, is that Jesus, he's not really interested in starting with some of those exterior, those peripheral kind of things of our lives, those pieces that make up the outer kind of shell. He really wants to get at the, at the heart of it. He wants to go in and transform us from the inside, from the core of who we are. And uh, he knows that if that can happen but then the rest of it just kind of falls into place. The rest of it will align up uh, to what his will and what his heart is for us. So today's message, today's message is, is titled, A Rehabbed Heart. Amen? Let's pray. Father, um, today we want to listen to you. Because we know going into this year that there are a lot of things that need to change in our lives. And we tend to, we do, we look at the easy things to change. Um, <laughs> Changing our hearts, that, that's just beyond us. And so we need you to be doing that work in us. We need your spirit to be here even now and be using your word to, to really go in deep and to um, be transforming us, to be changing us, to re rehabilitating our hearts so that we can follow after you, that we can love the way that you loved, that we can make your son, Jesus, known in this world. And so, Father, we pray that your spirit would take this space and this time and we'd set it apart for his work, that he would meet us here, that our ears would be open to hear him, 
that our hearts would be attuned to your voice so that all that you say we would hear, but not hear just with our ears, but that it would be taken in and it would take root and that we would see you actually changing us, that we would be different when we leave this place than when we came in. We pray these things for your glory, Father. We pray these things in the name of your son, Jesus, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. You guys can have a seat. So I remember the first time that I was introduced to the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, I was in high school. Uh, it was in a high school uh, uh, Sunday school class. And we were sitting there and the person who was teaching, uh, for the first time I was kind of hearing these things in context in this whole section. And it, it struck me that this Sermon on the Mount, the way it opens, it just sounds like Jesus is making a bunch of random statements, right? He's just kind of throwing some stuff out there that sounds important. Uh, and each one of them starts with this, this word blessed. It says, blessed are these that do this and, and that and the other thing. And, and for that reason, this section is called the Beatitudes because the Beatitudes, it comes, that word comes from a Latin word that means blessed. It just means blessed or extremely happy. And, and what the person um, that was teaching, what they were saying is something that many of you have probably heard uh, taught about this section as well, is that if we would just learn how to live into these statements that Jesus makes, that we would have a much more blessed life, that we'd have a happier life. Now, sounds good because, I mean, who doesn't want a blessed life, right? I mean, if we understand what blessing is, and that's God pouring his goodness down in, he's targeting us with his, his kindness, and uh, who doesn't want that? The problem is, is, is that it's hard to figure out what it means to live into these statements, right? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What does that mean? What does it mean to live a life of mourning, what does it mean to have a pure heart? And we look at some of those things and we say, you know, that's, that's hard to figure out. I mean, the only thing that we can make sense of is that if you took these things at face value, the things that are literally being said, being hungry, being thirsty, being persecuted, right? Mourning. We look at those and we say, that doesn't sound like a blessed life, right? That sounds like the opposite. And so we can't take it literally so why is Jesus saying these things the way that he's saying them? And that's one of the first things that we need to see about what's going on here, about what Jesus is doing, because he's very intentionally doing this. In fact, regularly, Jesus, when he had something important to say about either the kingdom or about our lives, he would say it in a very provocative way. He'd say it sometimes in a very shocking way. In fact, sometimes, uh, in fact, there's one time in, in the book of Luke, in Luke 4, where it talks about this time where Jesus is kind of launching his, his teaching ministry. And it says that uh, the people that heard what he said and how he said it were so shocked by what he said and by how he said it that they wanted to kill him. And that was like, that was his first day, right? I mean, he's just getting into this thing and they already want to kill him. And we know that the story just goes downhill from there. What we're gonna find out though is that in spite of the way that Jesus is saying this, in spite of how shocking it sounds when he says, no, you're blessed if you're poor. And you're going, what does that mean? But in spite of that, what we're gonna find is that each of these statements is actually, it's a part of a pathway that Jesus is laying out. It's a part of a pathway that he has, has laid out and God has set up for his people that's meant to move us from a place of apathy really to a place of awakening, Right? A place where we feel battered by this world to where we can see that we're actually blessed as we walk through it. And really a place where we see ourselves as 
these fearful kind of onlookers to all that goes around and goes on in our lives to those who are really faith-filled children of God who are here in order to change the very course of history. Because that's what this, this pathway, that's what this section, the Beatitudes, is really, is really all about. Now, um, as you can tell this morning, we're gonna do things a little bit differently than maybe I've done in the past in, in different sermons. And some of you might ask, well, why do you have a whiteboard? Jesus didn't need a whiteboard, right? Um, and I would just say, we don't know whether he used a whiteboard or not. So we're gonna use a whiteboard this morning. Um, but the, the truth is, this is because that, you know, there's a real gap between, if you go back to first century Jewish kind of context and you try and pull that forward to a 21st century uh, American context, things have changed. And one of the ways that things have really changed is the way that we try to convey and we try and organize and communicate our thoughts and ideas. And so I, I'm gonna use the whiteboard primarily as a place to give us some, some visual anchor points as we go through this so that we can see how Jesus has really laid out this pathway and what he wants us uh, to take away from that, what he wants us to really, how he wants us to apply that to our lives. So one of the things that we need to understand about uh, the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes are formed in uh, what is called a chiasm, okay? And the truth is the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount and really the whole book of Matthew is formed in this structure. This is how uh, people in the ancient Middies were, they would organize their thoughts, this in a chiasm. It comes from, uh, the word chiasm comes from the letter, Greek letter chi, that looked like an X, okay? And so in our way of thinking, we organize, we move from top to bottom and we go in what's kind of a linear way, right? We go one, two, three, A, B, C, we work our way down as we go through it. In a chiasm, you'll have a point up at the beginning and then you'll have a point that kind of reflects it or is connected to it at the end. And then you move in from then and the second point will be associated with a point the second from the end. And you'll work your way like an X does to the middle where you'll find the main point. And so we're gonna find that, the, that this is how the, the Beatitudes are arranged as well. Let me show you. So we start out, we have blessed are the poor. And then we end up, uh, we have blessed are those who mourn. And we have blessed are the meek. Then you have this long one. <laughs> blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We're gonna be talking about some of these. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. Uh, these last, uh, and then blessed are the peacemakers. I'm gonna abbreviate these ones. <laughs> blessed are those who are persecuted uh, for the sake of righteousness, and then blessed are you when you're persecuted for my sake, okay? So these are the, this is basically the, the outlay of this. Now, what we're gonna find is uh, these first two, they actually make up, they make up kind of one unit. They make up the first unit of this chiasm. And we connect them together because actually they're connected together in the Old Testament. They're actually connected together in the life of Jesus. That story I was telling you about in, in Luke 4 where Jesus is, is starting off his teaching ministry. He does it, he's, he's in a um, 
synagogue, and he opens the scroll of Isaiah. And he says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read from the scroll of Isaiah, in Isaiah 61, verse one and two, and he's about to tell them, and this passage is all about me, and it's all about my ministry. So he goes and he reads Isaiah 61, one and two, and it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me, and it says the Lord has anointed me to do, and it has this whole list of things. And the first one on the list is that the Lord has anointed me to go and proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, in our, uh, in our versions, it says he proclaims the good news to the afflicted. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. And then it says, and then the last uh, item on that list is that he also comes to comfort those who mourn. And so what we find in, in, in Matthew is that Jesus is beginning his teaching ministry in Matthew as well with this same uh, the same scripture in mind, this Isaiah 61. And these two ideas, they form this one kind of uh, part of this chiasm that comes out of Isaiah 61. Okay, so we have Isaiah 61, one and two. Now, uh, in our versions of the Bible, it translates that word. It says, he came and he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom to the afflicted. Now here's Jesus and he's saying, hey, blessed are you, poor or the afflicted, um, because yours is the kingdom. So he's proclaiming the good news of the kingdom to the poor and he's telling the, the people who are mourning that they uh, will be comforted. Now in Isaiah 61, in our versions, it says, it says afflicted and we go, well, how come it says poor? Well, if you look at the version that Jesus is reading, it seems to be, in, uh, even in Luke 4, we see that he's reading a different translation. In fact, it was the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we know was in Jesus' day. It was called the Septuagint. And in that Greek translation, they put it in the common language, kind of like English is today, so that everybody could read the Old Testament because they didn't know Hebrew. And when they translated this passage, they used this word patochus, which means the poor. Because in that day, uh, the Greek word patokos, it doesn't just mean what we think of as poor. It's just not poor in money, poor in economics. It meant lacking any kind of resources, lacking any kind of power, lacking any kind of um, access or influence. And also it had the inference that because they had that lack, they were also being oppressed. They were being afflicted, right? So they had used this word because this word was to really get across that thought of afflicted. So in this first part, what we have is those who are being afflicted and are mourning because of it, okay? We there okay? Now we go down to the bottom and we say, okay, here we have two more that are obviously tied together, right? They're tied together because it's those who are persecuted and you when you're persecuted, that, that makes sense, that connection makes sense. But then what does Jesus say that those people should do? He says, blessed are you when you're persecuted. Rejoice, right? Rejoice and be glad. So at the beginning, we have this piece that says the afflicted are mourning. And in this, we have the last part. We have this, those who are persecuted, still suffering bad times, but instead of mourning, they're rejoicing. You see how, so these two kind of, they reflect, they're associated. They, they show a difference a bit, but they're connected. Then we move in, 
we move into the next layer. And we have the, uh, the meek. And we have the peacemakers. And if we read on in those, um, in those verses, we see blessed are the meek because they become, what do they do? They inherit the earth. Okay, so we're talking about heirs in this one. And then blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called the sons, right? Well, in the first century, who were the heirs? Sons. Who were the sons? Well, they were the heirs always. So we have this layer that's talking about this thing about position in the family and status that, that has been given to people as heirs and as inheritors of blessing, right? And then we come to the middle section. So we have that section. We have um, the second kind of layer is here. These two reflect each other. And then we end up with these middle three. These middle three that are righteousness, mercy, and this thing called purity of heart. And we go, well, what's that, what's that about? Well, you know, a lot of times when we think about righteousness and we think about purity of heart, what we think about is that, that interior thing that God does in our lives, right? He, he washes our hearts clean from sin so that we have right standing before him. And that's absolutely true, right? God gives us right standing by cleaning our hearts. But that's not what this is talking about. In fact, this is talking about something that is not so much of an interior state as it is about our position, our posture towards, towards God and our posture towards others. Righteousness is a word in, in the Greek that uh, it's, it's a word that is often translated as justice. It's about having right standing with God because of how we, how we are acting rightly towards other people on their behalf. That's what this word means. So this is about our standing with other people. Purity of heart is not just about having an ethical purity inside. It's really about having this undiluted focus, this undiluted devotion. It's a pure devotion to God, to God alone. So what we find here is this is our standing with others, our posture towards others. This is about our standing, our stance and posture towards God. And right in the middle, it has the main point. It's all anchored around this word mercy, which really is just a word that summarizes the very heart and the character of God. So what we find is that these aren't just a bunch of random statements, right? This is laid out very specifically to lead us to this middle and to talk about what does it mean to have a rehabbed heart? What does it take for God to rehab our heart, to change and transform our hearts? And it has something to do with moving from this place of kind of affliction to maybe one of persecution, but from mourning to rejoicing, to move from this place that moves us to the middle to understand God's heart. And so Jesus is actually, by arranging these in this way, he's starting to show us this idea of this pathway that he has in mind for us to walk. All right? So here's that pathway. And he wants to move us from a place of mourning to joy. We see over and over in the Old Testament where God says he, he replaces our mourning and our weeping with joy. He wants to move us from a place where, in a good way, we're humble and we're meekly receiving from God to where we are actively out there doing God's work, 
and doing God's will. He wants us to move us to a place where we have, we're standing in, in right standing and right position and, and kind of attitude and posture towards him and where we are acting rightly towards others in this world and where we have the, actually the, the courage to do this in spite of persecution, in the, in the face of conflict, in the face of opposition sometimes and to do his work and his will. And it all comes and it focuses and circles around, finds this orbit around mercy, mercy. And what we start to see is mercy is the thing that really holds this whole thing together. Mercy is found through this whole pathway. If you think about your own life, I mean, mercy, God's mercy is what found you in your place of affliction, right? And still told you, hey, there's hope because I can provide a way of rescue, Mercy is what meets us and, and calls us to, to humble ourselves so that we don't have all this clutter in our lives, but that we can begin to focus on God alone and see that he is all that we need. That if we can kind of narrow things down so we're not trying to aim at 50 different things, that if we just see God alone, that that's enough. Mercy is what shows us, that raises us up to, to the level that he says, you know what, I have made you all heirs. And I've made you all, and I'm gonna put sons, but it's really sons and daughters, right? It's the children. Um, why do they use sons? Were they sexist back then? No, um, back in this day, daughters didn't get anything. Nobody wanted to be a daughter in the first century, right? That meant she didn't get anything. Even God's daughters become his sons, his heirs. That's why they would use that word, to let all of us know that we've been brought into this inheritance that God has for us. He, mercy raised us up to that. Mercy is what has shown us that all that we need and has moved us so that our righteousness and our purity of heart isn't just kind of this interior thing that we sit on and we enjoy with God. Mercy is what shows us, that drives us, that says, you know, it's God's heart of mercy that then compels us out into this world. And says, you know, I can't just sit on this thing. I gotta make him known. I need his peace. I need other people to know the peace that I've come to understand and to know. And mercy is what gives us that courage to stand, even in the face of, of persecution, to rejoice. Why? Because we see that, you know what? God's servants, God's people have always faced persecution when they've tried to bring his message of peace. Even the prophets, that's what Matthew says, Right? Remembering that even the prophets, this is exactly how they treated the prophets that went before you. Prophets like Isaiah. Prophets like uh, the, throughout the Old Testament. And, and we find the, the courage to stand in the face of that kind of opposition. And so mercy, we find, drives all of this. What we find in this is that, um, so we find this, this purity of heart really is about faithfulness. Purity of heart is really about, about us singling down to just knowing God. And mercy is about taking on the very, the very nature and the very character of God. Now, what's funny about and interesting about these three is that these three are also three that we find in other places, in the New Testament and the Old Testament. These three are the, we find them in Matthew 23, where Jesus is talking to the religious leaders of the day. And he says to them, he says, you know, you guys have completely missed the boat for what I'm looking for, for my kingdom. And the reason he gives in Matthew 23, 23, he says, you pay such close attention 
to these details about these commands that God has given you, but you miss the big picture, the big themes that he tells you are so important. And those themes are what? Those themes are justice and mercy and faithfulness. And then we find it again. We find it in the Old Testament in in Micah. Micah is talking to God's people and he says, God has shown you. He's shown you people. He has shown you, oh man, what the Lord, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. But to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Well, humbly, what do you mean? Well, humbly, that you don't have all that clutter. There's not a lot of, there's not a lot of frills with those who are humble. There's just focus. There's one thing. It's very clear. It's very pure. It's very centered. Walk humbly with God alone as your God. So when Jesus lays these things out, he says, you know, this is the pathway. This is the pathway I'm asking you to walk that moves from this place of mourning to this place of meekness, that then we find ourselves moving to this place of faithfulness, this place, and then we're driven out by mercy. We were driven out again, sorry about that, by, to find that we can't just sit on it. It moves us outwards toward righteousness. It moves us out towards making peace and then drives us to this place where we rejoice even in the place of persecution. And we say, so this is the pathway. This is the pathway, he says, this is how your hearts are transformed. This is how your hearts are rehabbed to reflect my own so that when you go out, people don't just see you. They see God in you, God through you. So how does it work, this work? How do we, how do we walk through uh, on this pathway? Well, first, all of us, we know this. We start in this place of, of affliction and mourning, don't we? I mean, we understand this. This is where our life falls apart. There's the lightning strike, you know, because it's horrible over there. And, you know, Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61 was written to a group of people who were suffering the consequences, really, of the poor decisions that they had made. They had departed from being, they had kind of become misaligned from God. They weren't aligned with his will or with his purposes, with his heart anymore, and they were suffering the consequences of that. And so, as a result, Isaiah says, you're in this place of affliction and mourning, and God is going to come rescue you, but that's where you're at. And we get that, don't we? I mean, we live in a world that we're constantly battered by the consequences of our own decisions and by the decisions and uh, uh, things, the choices that others have made. It goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, doesn't it? And so when we face sickness or when we face sorrow, when we face war or oppression or poverty, when we face those kind of things, we know that it's not because those are things that God intended for us. Those are things we invited in or somebody invited in along the way. And so now we end up with this place of affliction and crying out to God out of this broken place of mourning and emptiness. And so we get that. But Jesus says at the end of this one, he says, but blessed are those who mourn because they will be comforted. Right Now this word comforted, it's the word um, parakaleo, and it's a word that's often used in the New Testament about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes along. In fact, he is called the comforter. He is the one that comes alongside and who comforts us. You know, in Psalm 34, 18, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he comes to rescue those who are crushed in spirit. One of the things we need to know about this, 
this pathway is where we are not going to get anywhere until we understand and we let God meet us in the places that we are most broken, that we are most crushed. Sometimes we think we have to clean up our our act for God in order for him to meet us. But he says, no, I meet you in the places where your decision has caused your own brokenness. I'm not shocked by that. He knows that this is where we are. And so uh, starting this path, we, we let the Holy Spirit meet us at this place where we are most broken and we're crying out to him. But then he leads us to a place that he, he always leads us to the same place. And Matthew says he leads us to this place called meekness, right? So the Holy Spirit comes in and he meets us and he brings us to this place called meekness. And meekness is about this place where we are empty. We are empty because we've gone through affliction. Everything's, our dreams have been crushed. Our, our illusions about how powerful we are, they've been flattened. All of that, we are empty. And we empty it all out and we meet God in that place. You know, a lot of times we want to meet God kind of on our terms, right? We want God's spirit to be there and all his, his, his blessing. We want to have that blessed life and miracles to erupt all around us and his power to be working through us. You know, that's the life we want to experience. But we also want to bring in our control because we want to dictate to God how he uses his power. And we want to still be able to guide our own plans and our own lives to go the way we want to go. And meekness says, I can't meet you there, right? God comes to us and he says, no, meekness is where we lay it all down and we learn to simply trust him with all of it. And that's a really hard step to take. But that's where this journey begins. Now, over time, what meekness does is we let those things die. We let our own kind of sense of control and our own sense of importance and our own sense of kind of wanting to dictate our own life. As those things die, what we see develop is what? A heart that's more and more pure, that's less and less diluted, that's less and less cluttered by all the the affections and all the, the, the loyalties that we've made to other things and all the things that we have, we've, we've promised to do and we've made promises to ourselves and others and we've, and we've just cluttered our life up. And he says, no, it has to be about you trusting and following me. I'm so, and, and we end up in this place of faithfulness. And that's also, he says, when we get there, that's the first place we begin to see mercy. We begin to clearly see how God's mercy has been at work. We begin to see how God's mercy met us in, in our affliction. And not only his mercy, we see that we experienced that mercy when he forgave us. He forgave us for the, 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 for the decisions that got us in the mess in the first place. And he wiped that all out. And we see that was an act of mercy. We see that his mercy, he, he met us here in this place and he, he brought us to this place where we, were, we emptied ourselves out and, and he called us to this emptiness so that then he could fill us with his power and his, his wisdom. We see that his, by his mercy, he raised us up to the status as his, his children. We're not just his servants. We're not just there to be toyed with by God. We are there as the objects of his love. And we start seeing, man, we've been affected by this mercy. But then we also see we've been changed by this mercy because God has also started to plant this this heart of mercy in us. We have become not just objects of his mercy, but we have become his people of mercy. 
We become his merciful ones that we are compelled then to go out and make his mercy known into a world. I have a heart of mercy in me now because of what God has done. Now, granted, we're all learning how to live into that better every day, right? I mean, none of us are wandering around going, yes, I'm perfect in mercy, just like my God, right? We're not there yet. But God is creating in us this heart of mercy, and he says it's there. It's just being developed in you now. Now, the importance of that is because then and only then, after being transformed by mercy, do we even understand what it means to do right and to make peace. You know, we have a lot of people in our world that go out and they say, I'm going to do right. What's right, I'm gonna make peace. I'm gonna make things right and I'm gonna make things peaceful. And what's ironic is how often the tools that they use are things like war, right? Or they'll use oppression or they'll use violence or they'll use deception in order to make what they believe is right and make what they believe is peace. It is not until we are transformed by the mercy of God and we are in this place of trust of God that we can even know what righteousness and what peace look like to bring them to the world because we're not trying to impose our agenda. That died back here. Instead, we're trying to bring his peace. We're actually trying to do the work of bringing his best on behalf of the people that we come into contact in on behalf of the world that we see around us. The problem with bringing that kind of righteousness and that kind of peace is what? Sometimes that runs headlong into the plans and the systems and the ideas that other people have about what right, what's right and what peace should be looking like. And that's where persecution comes from, right? Now, what's funny about this whole thing is that, okay, so... We started off in a black cloud, right? Went through this whole thing and our hearts are transformed and now we're in a black cloud. How did that help, right? How did it help anything? But Jesus says there's a huge difference between being in this black cloud of the clutter and the, the opposition and the, and the hard circumstances of this world because we are doing his work and in being in this cloud when we know that he is with us. There's a huge difference between that and being in it because we know it's what we've done wrong and we know that we're alone and we're having to fix this on our own. He says, in this place, there's gonna be mourning. In this place, instead, it's almost like you see the light behind the clouds. There's a place of rejoicing. Okay, that's the pathway. Does that make sense? Does that make sense what God is trying to do? God is trying to move us from this place where we, we live in this world. Now, the situation doesn't change a whole lot, does it? But man, our heart does. It ends up that it doesn't help to change all the circumstances could change in your life. We'd still be stuck in a broken world that we're gonna run into affliction and persecution. We're gonna run into that. So the, the, the answer, Jesus says, is not changing the circumstances. The answer is about changing our heart. It's about having our heart transformed. And he says, this is the pathway. This is the path that we walk with him in order to see our heart change. I hope this is helpful. I hope some of you guys, as we think about what does it mean to follow Jesus, I hope that this has given us some stuff to think about, especially as we go into this Sermon on the Mount. I wanna just close, and I wanna give us three places that I think sometimes that we struggle. We struggle with this path. 
Three are probably the most common places. And some questions we can ask ourselves. One of the places is right here. It's that place where God asks us to enter into this place of meekness, to give up ourselves, to die to ourselves, to trust him and to just follow him. And that's tough. That's tough because, you know, we love the idea that Jesus is our savior. We love the idea that he's rescued us out of this broken place. We love this idea that he's our, he's our buddy, right? That he's encouraging us. We have a real hard time seeing Jesus as our Lord and Lord over everything, right? Leading, controlling, guiding, uh, directing us. But Jesus says, you know, the only way of rescue is when we give up the lordship of our life and we, give, we take him as the Lord of our life. The challenge here is to just ask ourselves, are there areas that we still hang on to? We hang on to the lordship, the direction of our own lives that we have not really given it. Often it's because we fear what God's gonna do with it. Well, you know, keep all the details, you're gonna stay here. You give up all the lordship to take him and to make him the only one. And you end up in this place where even though there are bad details, because there will always be bad circumstances, but there's rejoicing. So the question is, are there places in our life that we haven't given up that lordship? Have we really made Jesus lord over it all? I think that's the place of challenge. Second place of challenge, I think, is right down here. That's in that place of transition where it goes from my relationship with God is totally internal. I mean, we love to bask in the mercy and the grace of God and just let his blessings dump on our heads and just stay in those places. In fact, if we could take retreats the rest of our life and just be with Jesus, we might do that just to kind of hang out with him. And what's hard is to make that transition where his mercy doesn't allow us to just sit and bask with him but it compels us, it starts shaping us, our hearts and compels us outward the way that it compelled him to come and rescue us. The same mercy and that same heart compels us to go outward and do the harder work of doing righteousness and making peace in this world. And I think that's a challenge because it's easy sometimes to think about, uh, wouldn't it be nice if all God called us to be was nice people and make people feel comfortable, Right? That'd be easy and, and that'd be great, but he doesn't, and wouldn't it be nice if God just called us to just be with him and enjoy his benefits, but he instead, if I understand God's heart and how he's shaping his heart in me, I understand this, and I want you to think about this. If this is true, then Isaiah 61 applies just as much to me as it did to Jesus, because he's working his heart in me now. So the spirit of the Lord is upon me now, because the Lord has anointed me to what? To bring good news to the afflicted. He's anointed me to bring uh, comfort to the mourning. He's anointed me to proclaim freedom to the captives. He's, he's anointed me. That work is going on in me. So where's that place maybe in your life that God is compelling you by his mercy to show his mercy in this world that you're really just not that comfortable with? Right? Where's that place of transition where God is calling you to get engaged in his work, not just enjoying his, his blessings and his benefit? Okay, third one is this. I think the third place is right here because this is where we're really asking the question, am I gonna go all the way you know, with this work God is doing in me? Am I gonna go all the way in making peace and righteousness in this world? 
When I said, wouldn't it be great if God um, just called us to be nice and to make people comfortable? Wouldn't it be nice if all we just, we went around and we just kind of made peace and, and made people feel good about you know, who God was and all that. But often he calls us not to, just to do that, but sometimes to go past that in this line where we become his prophetic voice. Because some of the things that we found back here, even in our own lives, God says things that aren't comfortable for us and that mean that we need to change. And sometimes people don't like hearing that. And that, that brings this kind of resistance and this opposition against it. This is a hard line to cross, to move from a place where we just feel like we're bringing peace into people's lives and that we are somehow, we're, we're removing the conflict, right? And the question for us is, Will we go beyond just simply ending conflict in people's lives in order to establish the kingdom in their lives? Does that make sense? So maybe some things to think about. Think about where you are on this map. Think about if maybe some of those apply to you and where God might be working in your heart to just kind of take that next step with him as he rehabs your heart, as he makes us more of his people. Amen?